Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. This much we now know. The Russian hack against the Democratic National Committee this summer was the first ever attempt by a foreign power to disrupt the American electoral system and the biggest assault on that system since Watergate 44 years ago. And while the differences are obvious, Russian intelligence officers rather than Nixon henchmen, cryptic intrusions into a computer system versus the jimming of locks and the bugging of offices, there are also some uncanny parallels. The most obvious, of course, being a break-in at the DNC. That's where we'll start this episode of The Run-Up, all about this stunningly brazen act of political espionage, interference, and manipulation. I'm in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times with two of my colleagues who broke this story, David Sanger and Eric Lipton. David and Eric, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I want to start with a single vivid moment in this extraordinary story, and it's a phone call, the start of what will become a series of phone calls from an FBI special agent to this poor contractor at the Democratic National Committee. This call could have stopped the entire saga of this hacking, but of course it didn't. What, what happened there? So an IT consultant who works at the DNC received a telephone call from the FBI who notified him that there was evidence that there was someone that had gotten into their computer system and that there was a guy that was associated with a group called the Dukes. And the Dukes are a, a known cyber actor that's associated with Russia. And so the FBI agent was telling him, you should go look in your computer system to see if the Dukes are there. But the problem was this tech guy named Yared didn't believe that the guy calling him was actually an FBI agent. So he sort of checked out the computer system, but he spent as much time thinking, is this guy just a hoax? Why would he think it wasn't real? He second-guessed it mostly because the FBI agent had called the switchboard at the DNC. The switchboard then transferred him to the help desk. The help desk then handed him to Yared. And so Yared's getting it through a, some guy who claims to be an FBI agent. So why would an FBI agent call the switchboard and then get transferred to the IT consultant? It's like a bad parody of like any call you've ever made to the cable company. But so he, but here's my question. Do you imagine, as I do, that this guy, Yared, is currently replaying in his head and maybe replaying for the rest of his life how he handled it or mishandled it and how he could have been the person who stopped this whole thing? I think from the start, he feels as if just reading a memo that he wrote to explain his actions, that the FBI didn't give him enough information to find the hacker by being more specific about the IP address or the location potentially of where he should look for the malware. And I think he's probably feeling like it's the FBI's fault more than his own fault. Yeah, this is pretty common. Um, I've covered a lot of different cyber attacks. And usually they start with somebody calling and saying, you've been hacked. And someone else looking at it and saying, I'm looking here, everything looks fine to me. It's the story of what happened to the Office of Personnel Management, this incredibly boring government bureaucracy that uh, discovered a year after the hacking took place 
the Chinese had come in and taken the security files of 22 million Americans. And we're not just talking about their social security numbers and everything, but their financial histories, their marital histories, all their past relationships, you know, everything that Chinese agents would use. OPM had no idea. Right. There's right? an invisibility factor. There is. And that's what makes cyber such an incredibly powerful weapon because it's one of the few things you can attack with where the attacked person isn't really sure they've been attacked. Right, there's at all. no broken glass on the windshield. That's right. And, you know, even if you think back to the most dramatic cyber attack of modern times, which was what the United States and Israel did to the Iranians when we blew up the centrifuges in their nuclear program, for years the Iranians thought they were just screwing up how they were producing the, the centrifuges. So it's not surprising that somebody would come in and the company or the DNC in this case or others would say, I don't see a problem. When we talk about missteps on this, we can't focus on any one individual because it feels like every agency and individual in this saga somehow screwed up and didn't see the bigger picture. And I want to focus on the FBI for just a minute. It's half a mile away from the DNC offices, and yet their efforts to alert the Democratic National Committee that there was a hacking of their computer system consisted of a series of phone calls to this low-level contractor, and when they didn't get a response, they didn't seem to do a whole lot else for a while. Why didn't they literally go knock on the door at the DNC? Why didn't they try everything possible? They have a lot of notifications that they have to do when they get information that someone has potentially been hacked. And so one of their responsibilities is to reach out to that business or that individual and tell them. And so they handle so many notifications that, you know, they can't be physically going to every business or person. But in this case, it seems obvious. You're talking about the Democratic National Committee, which is helping run the presidential election, essentially, and to select the nominee for president. This is the same body that had had the break-in in the Watergate. And, and you'd also had a warning from the intelligence community in 2015 saying that there was already signs that hackers, foreign influences were trying to hack into the presidential campaigns. And not only that, but in Obama and McCain had both been targets of hackers and successfully infiltrated back in, in the last election cycle. So all of that said, the FBI clearly should have escalated this. They should have sent someone over there. They right. should have called you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the chairperson or the executive director at the DNC and said, we got to do something about this. We got to act. We're not getting the response we need. There's no good explanation for why they didn't. Eric, the DNC does not seem to be expressing a lot of remorse or regret over the way they handled themselves after the hack. And I wonder why you think that is. The DNC, I think, feels some regret that its IT team did not more aggressively pursue what was going on. But from their perspective, they also argue that you know, we're basically a nonprofit organization that's a pretty scrappy operation that doesn't have the resources of a major corporation to have high-level cybersecurity in place. And so we let it get through, and we, we failed. But at the same time, we're, we're up against the Russians, and uh, they're pretty formidable cyber players. So the Obama administration also comes out looking not so great, and we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But I want to step back and just explore what these cyber attacks actually were. And let's just begin with how this began. Is this a coordinated effort, David, by some agency within the Russian government? Or if not, what exactly is it? Well, there are actually competing Russian government operations here. From the best we can tell, there were two different attack groups. 
and they've both been seen before. Neither one of them is new. One of them goes back to 2007. Another one of them uh, is uh, just a few years later. One of them is associated with the FSB, which is the successor to the old KGB. But they do tend to do mostly standard surveillance, and uh, they're, they're not about making things public. They're not about being a player as much as they are an intelligence collector. Think more like the CIA. The second one is associated with the GRU, which is the Military Intelligence Unit. And they have in the past been uh, the ones who are believed responsible for attacks on the White House, the State Department, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all of whom lost vast amounts of unclassified emails over the past two or three years. So to add to Eric's point about why the FBI might have woken up to this a little bit earlier, it's not like they hadn't seen these guys before. They had just been doing this with the State Department. They would just been doing this with the Joint Chiefs. So this group then used a tactic that we haven't seen in the United States before, but we have seen in Europe, we have seen in Ukraine, which is take the material, sift through it, figure out the politically most beneficial time when it could be made public and embarrass the writer of the email. And, you know, that's not that hard. I mean, anybody who had all their email accounts cleared out, they're going to have things in it that they don't want people to read. But we argue is traditionally the point of gathering this information was so that a foreign government could become as nuanced and smart as possible about the motives and decision-making of a foreign government. But it wasn't to embarrass and determine outcomes right. traditionally, in the political process. Traditionally, it's espionage, right? But we're thinking like Americans. If you think like Russians for a moment, they see this as a faster way to get done something that goes back to the 1940s in Russian strategy, which are information operations. In the old days, it was propaganda. It was putting uh, fake articles in newspapers. It was uh, getting what's called compromat, which, you know, photographs of some politician or something in a compromising position. You know, this is all done. But what the cyber world does is it speeds it up and it amplifies it dramatically. So it takes an old technique and it makes it wildly more effective so that everybody is picking this up and acting as a repeater effect, including us. But do you know what emboldened Russia to take this leap from traditional espionage to something much more malicious and disruptive? That's the really interesting question because it was a big risk for Vladimir Putin or someone below him. And one of the reasons the intelligence community believes that Putin must have known about it or other leadership did, is that if you're going to take that big a risk, you want to do it making sure that the boss understands what risk you're putting him in. And the fact that they did it implies that there was a desired political outcome that the Russians were seeking to it may, achieve. It may. I mean, the CIA has gradually come to the conclusion that they were trying to support one candidate over another. But it was just a few months ago that what we were hearing was, no, they're perfectly happy to just disrupt the system and make the American democratic system look either corrupt or not reliable or undercut its integrity. So they may have assumed that Hillary Clinton would be president and they might not have wanted that. But in the end, this hacking may have actually undermined Donald Trump, who's the person they really did want to be president. 
I mean, I think they, they thought that they would have undermined Hillary Clinton. Clearly, they also were more in accord with what Trump was saying about uh, relationships between the United States and Russia. But I can't believe that on November 8th, Vladimir Putin had any better idea than any of the rest of us that Donald Trump was going to get elected. I want to talk about another turning point in this cyber attack against the United States, which is the moment that the hackers jump from the DNC's computer system to the inbox of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman. And that involves another case of human error by another kind of low-level guy. And this one is kind of heartbreaking when you really learn the details of it. And I want you to to tell that story, Eric. Sure. There was a, a, a tech guy that worked for the Hillary for America campaign and an email had come into John Podesta's personal Gmail account, and the email said that someone has attempted to access your Gmail and that that person was in Ukraine and that you must immediately change your password. So several people had access to John Podesta's personal email account, and so one of his aides saw that and then transferred that email to the tech guy. The tech guy looks at it, and he writes back to uh, Podesta's aide that this was a legitimate email and that Podesta must immediately change his password and, and also do what's called two-step verification to protect himself from a hacker. So that email then led either Podesta himself or one of his aides, and he didn't tell us uh, which was the actual person, clicking on the link and opening up 60,000 emails over a decade-long period from his Gmail account to the hackers. So that was a huge mistake. I, I mean, mean two misplaced letters. Yes. Well, the, the t IT guy says that he meant to say that this is an illegitimate email. But, you know, some people have said, well, how's that possible? He would have written, you know, A-N versus A. And that the notion that it was simply a typo is hard to believe. But having spoken to him, I do believe that this guy is was capable of... He told me that he was getting dozens of these hacker, you know, phishing attempts. And so he was seeing so many of them that he just was writing everyone back saying this is not real and you need to change your password. You still need to change your password because someone But might... don't click on the link. Right, right. Go change your password the so traditional way. the guy clearly messed up, but he, he asserts, and I do believe him, that he recognized that this was probably a phishing right. attempt. So it, it feels like we have to talk now when we mention John Podesta and these emails, despite the human error, about the role of the media in all of this, because the content of John Podesta's hacked emails end up gracing the front pages of newspapers and newscasts all across the country, and we must be candid here, including several times the New York Times itself, ourself. Um, I wonder, since both of you guys are so deep in this, if you've picked up on any kind of collective reevaluation or discomfort in the aftermath of all this about whether or not that was the right decision. Look, I've got some, and I wrote some of those stories. There was real news in these, and had we not written it, it was going to get written elsewhere because these were out on WikiLeaks, right? So it's the same problem in a way that we faced when Snowden obtained and made public right. uh, the documents from the NSA. So your journalistic choice is between covering your eyes and your ears and saying, I hear no evil, I see no evil, and I will report from nothing that was ill-gotten Ill gains, or doing it and kind of holding your nose, particularly in the case of John Podesta's emails, because that wasn't the State Department losing its systems or the NSA. It was an individual 
I think that this is a really difficult question and that we're in an era where these kinds of, you know, hacked dumps are coming to us with some regularity and it presents a really difficult question for the newspaper and for all journalists and um, there's no good answer. I mean, David has articulated it and but it is something that we need to have a broader conversation about here at the New York Times because, you know, when you spoke to the Democrats whose emails got out there, they were devastated and and they felt like the newspapers had become like the weaponizers of this stuff. And and we played a role in a Russian plot because we were the ones that actually spread the information. And and so we were abused and, and used in a way that completely answered the desires of the Russians. And that seems really wrong. Right. Well, luckily for you, editors of The New York Times do listen very closely to this podcast. I want to turn to the Obama administration because both of you report that, that the president in not publicly calling out Russia or imposing sanctions when they learned about the hacking, essentially further emboldened this operation. And I want to know why you think the administration responded as it did and what the impact really was. So there are two ways to think about this, I think. One frame is Barack Obama is a cautious guy. And he is. And he is. And it's actually one of the things that people have sort of appreciated about his presidency after... The Bush years, you know, if there are um, concerns about what George Bush did, they were mostly errors of commission. And if there are concerns about what Barack Obama has done, they are mostly errors of omission. And the question is, it was this one, like Syria, maybe a moment where he was too cautious. That's the argument. Now, one way to compare it is to think about the last big splashy attack, cyber attack on the United States that involved the release of emails and all that. And it was the North Korean attack on Sony exactly two years ago this month. And in that case, just for anybody who's forgotten, um, the North Koreans were very upset about a truly terrible movie that was coming out called The Interview. Um, if you're thinking of something to watch during the Christmas holiday, <laughs> skip this one, okay? Uh, and uh, the, the plot was basically a couple of journalists are sent off to go interview Kim Jong-un, the uh, young leader of North Korea, and uh, the CIA hires them to assassinate him. You know, crazy madcap comedy. But Kim Jong-un didn't think it was as funny as a lot of people in Hollywood did. And so he did the first natural thing you would do when you're upset about a movie that's going to be released, <laughs> which is he wrote a letter to the um, Secretary General of the United Nations asking him to stop the movie because everybody knows how much influence the Secretary General has over In Hollywood. Hollywood producers, right? The second thing he did was order a cyber attack on Sony. And it not only released emails, nowhere near as consequential as what Eric and Scott and I wrote about, but instead things about how Angelina Jolie in the, was, in the view of producers, a spoiled brat when they were dealing with her. Um, and they also went and destroyed, through malware, about 70% of Sony Pictures Entertainment's computer networks. Now, in that case, President Obama came down to the press room, identified the North Koreans based on intelligence he had, announced sanctions a mm. few weeks later, and mysteriously, for a couple of days the North Korean computer networks went totally dead. Funny that. No one's explained how that happened. <laughs> okay. So, proportionally, 
That's a significant response. That was a significant response. And there are people in the cyber world, for reasons I won't bore our listeners with, who actually be, believe that was an under-response, considering we had had an attack on an American company that had the North Koreans bombed the Sony studios, and you saw it on fire on CNN, and but done the same amount of damage that we probably would have sent B-52s. Okay, so that's one example. So the White House people come in looking at this, but Russia's a lot more complicated. First of all, they're a nuclear power. Secondly, we needed them in Syria. Thirdly, the president didn't want to act in a way that would seem partisan, and that he was acting on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Fourthly, they didn't want to get into a situation in which they started escalating with the Russians, and the Russians came back and started hacking the actual vote on election day. Hmm. So there were a lot of people saying, look, if you're going to do anything to them, just wait till after November 8th, Mr. President. But the result is that right now we've done almost nothing, even economic sanctions. And if you're another country thinking about hacking into the next American election, not you a, might say free fire zone, no penalty. Not a big disincentive. And that brings me to our president-elect, who does not seem all that alarmed about this attack. And everybody else seems to have arrived at a consensus that this was clearly targeted at the Clinton campaign not the Trump campaign, that it was well-organized, that it comes out of Russia. He offers a dispute of all of those facts that we've just described. And I wonder why you th think that is. Well, I mean, I guess that this undermines the legitimacy of his victory in November because it suggests that the Russians were his partner in his victory. And so him c conceding that they played that role would give you know would lead to open questions as to whether or not he really deserves to be president and but he is in a lonely place right now in suggesting that there isn't solid evidence that the russians played a part in it i mean there is an open debate that whether or not this was intentionally done to help elect him that's there is some disagreement among intelligence players in the government but there is you know agreement across the board that this there were russian state players that 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 directed this operation the real question right now is whether or not there will be an independent commission created by Congress, sort of like the equivalent of the 9-11 Commission or some other you know, major, the Watergate Commission, to, with subpoena power, investigate this, to write an independent report, to collect all the, all the available documentation, and, and to find out what happened, who exactly played what role, and, and was there any participation from anyone in the United States as well. And, and that, that is an open question as to whether or not that will happen. Right now, the Senate Republicans are saying, they just want to have a Senate committee look into this. That, that would be a Senate committee that's run by, you know, Republicans. So it would not necessarily be a, a complete investigation. So we, we don't, there's an open question as to how thorough the ultimate answers will be about what happened here. David, let's go back to what, to what you just smartly pointed out, which is that if the current president, who's a Democrat, doesn't think that this is cause for significant retribution, what can we or even should we expect from the Republican president who feels a stronger affinity for Russia to begin with. And what message does it send to other cyber attackers from countries he may not feel as great an affinity right. to? Now, there are four adversaries in the United States that have significant cyber capability. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Others are developing it, but those are the four that have used it the most actively. Of that group, he's got a lot of nasty things to say, rightly so, uh, in many cases, about the North Koreans, 
the Iranians. He doesn't like the Iranians very much with the Iran nuclear deal, the Chinese. So whatever precedent he's setting here is going to apply in the next four years as we're dealing with cyber adversaries there. And let's face it, what the big message of this attack is, is that while we have spent years talking about a cyber Pearl Harbor and something that shuts off the power along the East Coast, electric power or the, or the cell phone networks or the um, gas distribution networks or anything like that, cyber is much more useful when you use it in a subtle way that is not mm. going to bring about a big military response. So if he can't figure out a way to get at this problem, then he's setting a bad precedent. Now, we know he's concerned about the problem because just a few weeks ago he said that he was ordering the Pentagon to come up with a big cyber defense plan for the United States, which made people stand up and sort of wonder because it's actually the Department of Homeland Security that's supposed to go defend the country because the Pentagon you know, is only supposed to be in a case of, of sort of a wartime situation. Um, so he understands cyber is a problem, but I'm not sure that he's yet taken aboard the fact that everybody else in the world is looking at what the Russians did. You mentioned Pearl Harbor, and I got really fixated on what Mike Morrell, who's a former acting CIA director, said about this cyber attack. He described it as the political equivalent of September 11th, 2001, which is – the scale is, you know, that's big. And – and yet we don't see the public reacting. We don't see like a national consciousness forming around what this whole thing is. What do you think it would, will take in cyber to get there? And, and, and why hasn't the public been able to wrap its head around this one? The reason the American public didn't get outraged about it was because there was, this, there was confusion. Was this really a Russian attack or not? Because Trump was saying, oh, this is just some guy on a couch in New Jersey. And, and the Democrats and the, and the intelligence committee were saying, no, this is real. So the American public wasn't sure how to take it. So it didn't become like a, an attack on the United States. I actually think that's the Obama administration's fault because they did not publicly go out there and say, this is wrong. This is an attack on democracy. And, and, and also it's the Republicans' fault that they didn't join with the Democrats and, and say, you know, we as a nation will not stand for this. And, and, and only then would the American public stand up and say, you know, this is a terrible thing. And because they don't recognize it at this moment still as really an attack. David, whether it's September 11th or Pearl Harbor, are those the right historical analogies to think about? Are those too big? Are they just right? Well, Pearl Harbor got us into a global war. And that's not what this is. This is a low-level, constant conflict. So one way to think about cyber conflict is less about World War II and more about terrorism. That it's, it, it's something that is in the background each and every day, and when you think about how you're going to counter it, you might want to think about analogies in the counterterrorism space rather than in the military space. It feels remarkable that the Russian government would care about a local congressional race in the United States. And yet it feels like some of what they dug up was decisive in at least a couple of these races, right? I think that's sort of the biggest underreported part of this whole thing was that we were all focused on the sort of gossipy emails from the DNC 
that you know suggests sniping about Bernie and trying to undermine Bernie Sanders, and then Podesta's emails regarding Hillary Clinton. But at the same time as that stuff was being leaked, there was tens of thousands of pages of internal Democratic Party documents that detailed you know confidential evaluations of their own candidates, often with very derogatory information that was being dumped to bloggers in, in more than a dozen states across the United States, that, that whoever was doing this, the Russians, saw as a way to undermine the Democratic candidates and to knock out several of them. And what we found was when we looked at some of these races that you could arguably say that, that this, uh, this meant certain members of Congress will be Republicans instead of Democrats, and that there are, there are candidates who lost in part because of this derogatory information that was dumped with local reporters. And that's incredible. I mean, that, the, the, the democracy was impacted by this, you know, in, in the congressional races in a way that was largely invisible to the public because reporters were too busy writing about the presidential campaign and to, to spend much time looking at local House races. Is there one race where it truly and indisputably turned the tide against a Democrat? I mean, I focused on Annette Tadeo in Florida who is in the, the southern tip of Florida, and she was the candidate that the Democrats wanted to win in, in this southern Florida district because they saw that she had a much greater chance in the general election that, compared to uh, Joe Garcia, who was her primary opponent. Just before the first debate in that race, all of a sudden documents are distributed to local bloggers from Guccifer. Guccifer, too, was a website that was set up after the hacks occurred to distribute the information, along with another group called DC Leaks, which had really derogatory information on her and also on her, her opponent. But what her opponent did was to grab that information and blame her for hiring a private investigator. And that became the story, that she was, that she was you know, sneaking around collecting bad information about him. So she loses the primary. And then the Republicans take the derogatory information about the guy who won the primary and run ads using that against them. And so he lost, too. So, I mean, if there's a single race that, in which it appeared to have an actual impact on the outcome, and this is a, a district that Hillary Clinton won overwhelmingly. So that was a, basically a Democratic seat wow. that a Republican won in part because of the Russian hack. I want to end by asking you both what are the big kind of open and unanswered questions in this story, and, and where does it go from here? I think one of the first ones is, is President Obama going to act in the next 30 days in a way that kind of boxes in uh, President-elect Trump? He's already asked for a full report that's going to require the intelligence community to put down on paper what it learned and what its lessons learned are. There's suggestions he may or may not do some sanctions against Russia, which Mr. Trump would then come in and have to decide whether to go undo. So I think there are a lot of elements of this. And then once the congressional uh, investigations start up, there's going to be a lot of documents that suddenly are going to appear, and many that will probably be declassified. My biggest question is what, what type of congressional investigation will there be? Is it going to be an investigation overseen by the Republican majority that has no interest in embarrassing Donald Trump or, you know, undermining the legitimacy of his election, or will it be an independent commission that has subpoena power and a respected authority as its boss that really digs into it and answers all the questions that the public has? And there, that's, that's unanswered at this point, but I think that it really merits a formal commission to do an investigation and to try to put to rest questions that otherwise I don't think we'll really get answers to. You know, we have to remember that we got more elections coming. 
the French are about to have an election, the Germans are about to have an election. They've already talked about seeing these same techniques. We have midterms coming. Eric's piece about the congressional races tells you he's got no compunctions about going into that. And then we're going to have a presidential election four years from now. And the biggest mistake would be not to have learned the lessons from this one. Eric and David, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a break right there, and we'll be right back. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. When I asked Eric Lipton to name a campaign whose outcome was most clearly influenced by the release of these hacked emails, he named Annette Tadeo. She lost a Democratic primary race for a House seat in Florida this year after secret campaign documents uncovered by the Russian hackers were published by reporters and bloggers. Joining me now to tell that story is Annette Tadeo herself. Annette, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I want to ask you, what was actually in those documents? And what was the most difficult or maybe even embarrassing thing for you to have to see? I I really wasn't uh, embarrassed by any of the information that came out. I was much more aware of the fact that we were now an open book. Our entire strategy came out, our internal polling, our research of our opponents. Uh, So all of this being out in the open meant that our opponents were able to see everything and everything that we were going to do as as we had a path to victory. And this happened just around the time when a poll came out that showed that I had moved from being 24 points under to being tied with my opponent in the primary. And this clearly uh, was uh, a setback that we didn't need. and We didn't need our primary opponent and former Congressman Joe Garcia, you know, making up information about, you know, how we went about getting the research. You know, everybody knows that every campaign does research on their opponents, but regular voters, um, they don't necessarily know that. And all regular voters heard at a debate performance just a few days after all this came out was, you know, Annette has hired a private detective to hi- to follow me around, and this is, you know, this humongous bunch of paper is what came out of it. 
you know, obviously the reason there was so much research is because there was so much scandal uh, with my opponent. But but that's, you know, it didn't come out because of a private detective. It didn't come out because it's normal operating procedure to do research. Um, and uh, from a voter's perspective, it was seen as intrusive. Um, and I think that that definitely had a role. And just to be clear, you did not hire a private investigator? Never. And I I, I, I don't know of many campaigns that do so. <laughs> it's really, you know, these research companies that dedicate themselves to uh, sit at a computer and look at everything you've ever said to the media or every vote you've ever taken if you've been elected and uh, things like that. Obviously, any articles that have been written or any investigations in this case, my opponent had been investigated and his chief of staff had gone to jail and there was uh, all kinds of issues with, you know, impropriety. I want you to take me to the to the moment where this hack is suddenly becoming public. Are you on your phone looking at this blogger, Guccifer 2.0, and seeing articles? Is someone sending you them? Where were you when that happened? I was in the car on my way to an interview, and I got a text message about it. But we were also, um, shortly after finding out about the hack, uh, we were put on the phone with the lawyers for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, who recommended immediately that we do not go uh, to the Guccifer 2.0 website uh, to look at anything or what's out there, because of the fact that it, it was believed that, you know, there would be phishing uh, things put on there if you went there so that you could actually be hacked. Your phone could be hacked or your computer that you're trying to uh, see the stuff with. So I stayed out of it and I waited uh, to, you know, as the reports came out or as the uh, bloggers put out what was out there. I, you know, I still don't know everything that was put out <laughs> because obviously I never did go there myself and, and uh, told all my staff not to do so. Wow. So you managed to resist what I imagine would be an extraordinary temptation to stay up till two in the morning pouring through all of these documents. Yes. And, uh, you know, especially when you know that, that it came uh, from, from, a Russian hack. I mean, you know, the the if they went to that level to put this information out, to know where we were in the race, who was the strongest primary candidate to go up against the Republicans in November, all these details, then you know how sophisticated this is. And under no circumstances would it, was I going to continue to play into it. I wonder if you believe, as our colleague Eric Lipton does, that you lost this primary campaign because of the publication of these hacked documents. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. Um, I I think it's hard to quantify. And again, I I do know we were we were tied. I do know that it was very clear that we had a path to victory, and the outed documents of of polling data showed that. And you know, we, the race was decided by about 700 votes. That is a a very uh, small amount to wow. which you make decisions, and it's so. When you decide a, a race by such a small amount of votes, anything can matter, and that's what happened to us. So yes, it could have made a difference. It could have made one one way or the other, but um, we'll never know. But I think that there's a bigger problem uh, here, and that is that you know the Russians were so intelligent 
with their intelligence that they actually went, uh, you know, at this nitty-gritty level of a primary, putting information out two weeks before it. Right. It's so unexpected when we think about espionage and geopolitics to, like, go to a district in a state like Florida. It still kind of boggles the mind. Yes. And I also, you know, again, I I would never put it past uh, the... Cuban government and the Russian government to be somehow connected in this. Uh, I have seen all kinds of things, you know, out of Miami uh, because of those connections. So, so, so I, you know, I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I definitely think that it's odd that they played such a big role in in a Miami race. It's clear in your case that the media evaluated the documents and decided that they were newsworthy. But as somebody who experienced this on a really personal level, I wonder how you even view the concept that secreted documents like this are worthy of publication and if you are angry at the media outlets that publish them. Well, I do think that there uh, should be more uh, follow-through with our laws as to stolen information. Um, I, I am a strong believer in you know, freedom of the press. But at the same time, stolen information is is you know it's it's something that should be protected, and uh, and so that's that. There's a fine line, I understand, uh, but at the same time, I I do believe that that's how I felt. I was like, this is stolen information. It should not, you should not be allowed to put it out there knowing that it's stolen information. The Obama administration has had a very interesting reaction to this cyber attack. They took their time in deciding to blame Russia and arguably have not been hugely forceful in condemning it. I guess we could debate that. But as somebody who was a victim of this, do you think the administration has been reacting the right way? And what kind of investigation do you want to see into how this happened? I am all for an investigation and we need to get to the bottom of it. And I I want to applaud the Republican congresspeople and senators who have you know, joined in the call for a full investigation. I think this is beyond partisanship. This is about, you know, our security. With regards to the administration and whether they, you know, uh, moved quickly enough or did the right moves, it's really hard to criticize them when they're in the process of a very hotly contested national race and they didn't want to seem overly political. Um, it was a It was a tough call and I'm sure that's what they're dealing with. Uh, I wish they would have. Yes. Do I wish? Yes. I wish they would have done more. Uh, But I also don't want to say that I was in those shoes in the middle of, you know, again, was it was a very ugly uh, political time for our country. I wonder in the end if you're glad that this story is now out there and been made public by The Times and, and now by others given that it took America and the electorate so long to kind of grasp that this attack had happened and what the consequences were? I'm glad that it's out there, but I noticed by the responses that, you know, on social media and um, even the media's response, but just everyone's uh, sort of, oh, wow, uh, you know, kind of thing. Like, uh, there's a lot of shock and surprise. And, And again, even of the Republicans that are now saying, Wait a minute. This is this is much bigger than what we thought, and this is uh, troublesome 
to our national security. Do you think the country is shocked and angry enough about the fact that a foreign country tried to meddle in something so sacred as an American election? No. I don't think we are uh, as shocked as we should be and as angry as we should be. Um, I think, unfortunately, partisanship gets in the way of our uh, responses. And and again, that's why I you know commend the elected leaders of the Republican Party who have not experienced what I experienced, but that are saying this is not okay, and we should get to the bottom of it. Uh, I I wish uh, that that the response was uh, overall much more. And I think I am seeing it from the public, but not at the level that I think we should, because this is very alarming uh, to our democracy and everything we stand for. Annette, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's it for the run-up. This story isn't over, so we'll keep covering it here on the show. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll see you back here next week. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly, is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.